Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Well, welcome back to Wednesday nights at GCA. The last several weeks, we have not been here for our midweek service or for men's group meetings out of an abundance of caution because we were being told six, seven, nine weeks ago that upwards of three million people were going to die as a result of this virus. Turns out that none of those Models. none of those projections actually came out to be true. I am very grateful that GCA has just kept plowing forward through all of it. We have not missed a beat in terms of turning out teaching MP3s twice a week, Wednesdays and Sundays, like we always have. And uh, even though there was a Sunday where I was only talking to five people, I'm glad that we were able to just keep the doors open and keep worshiping God who deserves it. I had a conversation last night with a friend who was mentioning that his church had closed its doors completely. and He said, I don't understand it because we believe that God is sovereign. At least that's what we say. We say that God is sovereign. But then we stop getting together, meeting or anything else for fear that Sovereign God, who's in charge of sickness, might make some of us sick if we got together. And he said, I don't get it. And it made me happy to be able to say, you know, we never did that. We never completely shut the doors. We did our social distancing thing. The people who are at highest risk, we have told to stay home, be cautious. But we've left it up to everybody's conscience. And the worship of God has continued here The teaching of his word has continued to go out to the internet congregation because, as we have said for all the years that we have been here, faith is believing that the word of God is truer than our circumstances. And so we found ourselves in interesting, difficult circumstances, but the word of God continued to go out from GCA because the word of God deserves a defense under all circumstances. And God deserves to be worshipped even if we're burning at a stake. And so I'm very proud and very happy and very pleased that you all have continued to support the idea of GCA continuing on the way we have. And I think... This idea of just plowing forward anyway, letting God be God and believing what we teach, that he is absolutely sovereign under all circumstances. Our theology has also dictated our behavior, and that makes me really happy. Uh, Now, the downside of meeting here on a Wednesday night is that for the last several weeks, I have been doing the Wednesday messages by myself. I started by doing them here, and then I recorded the last few at my house. The advantage to that is, since I never get a chance to practice anything, I speak extemporaneously, I 
teach what I teach I go home and I listen back to it and sometimes I'm a little chagrined at the things that have fallen out of my face some of those things if they are too egregious never make it to the internet but I know that the people in the room heard it and probably remember it and when I was doing it from home if I said anything in a particularly clumsy way and I thought I can say that better or I can make that more clear I just simply would I would just simply restate it because I'm also the person who does the editing so I would go back and take out the bad version of what I said and put in the good one and what that really means I guess is if you have listened to any of the last three or four weeks of messages from Wednesday night and you thought boy that wasn't very good recognize that was the best version I thought I had I, I did as well as I could do under the circumstances and if that didn't work well then there's there's just no hope for me we are in Proverbs chapter 29 tonight which means there are only three more chapters in the book of Proverbs so in a matter of three maybe four weeks we will be done with the book of Proverbs I'm not sure where we're going next but I know for certain that I am planning to go verse by verse at least section by section through the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah those are two of the big Old Testament books that are rather glaringly absent from the website and I don't mean to beat you over the head with more Israelology but if we do the book of Jeremiah it's going to do its own beating over the head with Israelology it will be kind of unavoidable Isaiah you'll have to understand through the lens of Israel and Isaiah's connection as a prophet to Israel but then so much of Isaiah looks forward to the coming of Christ and as a consequence people have referred to Isaiah as the most New Testament book of the Old Testament it is the gospel story in the Old Testament and so for that reason I have kind of thought that whenever we finished the topical messages that we're doing that then I would go to Isaiah on Sunday morning so I'm thinking here for Wednesday nights we'll be doing Jeremiah so that should be enough to either encourage you or scare you off entirely because we will be doing more Israelology Proverbs 29 7 is the last of this particular section of the book of Proverbs which was an assemblage of many of Solomon's Proverbs by the men of Hezekiah when Hezekiah was king of Judah and so his scribes had gone back and collected many of the sayings of Solomon which is why so many of the Proverbs from this section are so familiar to us because many of them had already been addressed earlier in the book of Proverbs the advantage to this section of the book of Proverbs is that the scribes of Hezekiah seem to be grouping those Proverbs under kind of large topic headings and so if you've listened to the last few weeks you've heard how the individual chapters the last couple that we've addressed chapter 28 chapter 27 chapter 26 chapter 25 how they they fall under big topic headings but then chapter 29 seems to be 
just kind of a summary. It's kind of like, and wrapping up, we have these other proverbs from Solomon that we didn't really put under any of the previous topic headings, and so they just kind of jump around a little bit. But Hezekiah's scribes chose, in what we call verse 27, chose the perfect proverb to sum up the entire book of Proverbs. The whole book of Proverbs comes down to this contrast. An unjust man is abominable to the righteous, and he who is upright in his way is abominable to the wicked. And that's really everything the book of Proverbs has been about, the contrast between righteous, upright people and wicked, foolish people. That's really the big topic heading all the way through the book. So I think it's appropriate that the Proverbs of Solomon end on that particular Solomon. And then verse 30 gets into the words of Agur. And then chapter 31 is the words of King Lemuel. And of course, the Proverbs 31 woman. And so we will look at those in the weeks ahead. All right, I think that's all the introduction we're going to need. Most of what you're going to hear in this chapter is stuff you already know. It's, all, it's stuff you've already heard. It's already appeared in Proverbs. There is nothing in chapter 29 that's new. There's nothing unique. There's nothing that's going to be introduced suddenly in this chapter where you're going to say, wow, Solomon talked about that too? This is all going to be kind of repetitious thematically. We know all this stuff. For instance, chapter 29, verse 1 says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof. Remember that reproof means correction. So after a wise man has tried to correct and reprove somebody, if they have stiffened their neck against it, if they have hardened their heart against it, one of the words that God uses frequently in the Old Testament to refer to erring Israel is that they are a stiff-necked people. And what that means is they keep their neck up high, they keep their nose in the air, they will not bow to God. They will not bow to righteousness. They will not bow to the law of God and they harden their neck. And so Solomon says, a man who hardens his neck after being repeatedly reproved and corrected will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. The Hebrew of that phrase actually means that there just is no remedy. A person who goes through their whole life in a stiff-necked proud, haughty, nose-in-the-air kind of way is going to come to a crashing end. And if that doesn't happen right here and now in this lifetime, we certainly know that it's going to happen in the ultimate judgment when God is going to reprove them. So again, big thematic element, which is if you harden yourself against the reproof of wisdom, especially the wisdom that you find in the word of God, since the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If you harden yourself against that your whole life and you refuse to listen to it and abide by it, you're going to come to a disastrous end. And that's what the whole book of Proverbs has been telling us. Verse 2 then says, 
when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. Now, if that sounds familiar, then you were listening to last week's message on the internet, because chapter 28, verse 12 says, when the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. If you listened last week, you know that I explained that Solomon was talking from a kingly perspective. He was talking about the society that he was ruling over and saying that righteous rulership resulted in a society, in a city, in a nation, in a group of people who were going to be a glorious people, people who were going to rejoice because righteousness is the proper godly way for a nation to behave itself. But then if there was a wicked king, when the wicked rise up, which is exactly what started happening in the northern tribes of Israel as soon as they broke off under Rehoboam, when the wicked rise, then the opposite of great glory and rejoicing happens. Men run and hide themselves because they're fearful that the wickedness of the leaders is going to affect them directly. So same idea here in verse 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice because they know that there's going to be proper justice in the land. They know that people are going to follow not only the social laws, but the very law of God. The second half of that verse says, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. It's painful. It's difficult for people. That was true in Solomon's day. It is true to this very day. We like it when we have righteous law-abiding leaders, and we have lived through some leaders, some folks in Congress, even some governors, some mayors. We have lived through people who we just think, what, what? What are you thinking? What are you doing? How can you possibly think that that is a good rule or a good law? And as a result, we groan because these things are occurring in our land. Look over at verse 16 of chapter 29 for a second. Verse 16 says, when the wicked increase, which is certainly what happens when there is a wicked ruler, then wickedness increases in a society. When the wicked increase, transgression increases. Now, we're going to see this word transgression a few times in this chapter. So to kind of give it a working definition What it means is to be rebellious against the laws of the land and the law of God. To go your own way in a rebellious way and not obey the proper laws that are there for your good, that are there to properly instruct you. But if you're hardening your neck against proper reproof and instruction, well, then you're going to join the wicked and transgression increases But the righteous will see their fall. What we do know all the way through Proverbs and indeed all the way through the Bible, what we do know is that godliness wins out. You get to Revelation 22 and you read about the new Jerusalem. You read about the bridles of the horses and the pottery that people are using in their kitchens every day, that that is all holiness to the Lord, which means ultimately righteousness wins the day. But that doesn't mean that while we're here on this planet, 
in this present evil age, as the prince of the power of the air is still seeking whom he may devour, that doesn't mean that righteousness is going to break out now. The wicked are sometimes going to increase. Transgression is going to increase right along with it. But ultimately, we know that walking in righteousness, walking after the ways of God, is the proper way to be, not only because it's the wise way to be, but because that puts you on the side that ultimately wins. Righteousness ultimately wins out. So then back in verse 3. A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad. We've seen various versions of that all the way through the book of Proverbs, the relationship between a father and a son. And in fact, at the very beginning of Proverbs, Solomon directly refers to his son. I'm going to teach my son wisdom. And he says that a son who grows up to be wise is a great joy and a great comfort to his father. So it is a wise father's job to raise up his son in wisdom, in the admonition, in the teaching of the Lord. And a man who loves wisdom makes his father glad. But by contrast, but he who keeps company with harlots wastes his wealth. The word his there is added by the translators. More directly, it is a man who keeps company with harlots wastes wealth. So that may be his father's wealth that he's going through. It may be his own wealth, his inherited wealth. Under any circumstances, cavorting with harlots is a waste of money. And I think he's saying more here than just the sexual implications of being with harlots. He's saying that kind of riotous living, that kind of drinking, carousing, living for the day, living for your flesh, party all the time, that kind of living is a waste of money. And then later when you reach the point where you need that money, you will have wasted it all on riotous living, on parties, on harlots, on all that. And so it stands in contrast with wisdom. A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but the unwise man is going to waste all his money on that kind of lifestyle. And Solomon says it is, in fact, a waste. Look at verse 15 for a moment. Verse 15 is again referring to a father and a son, or a parent and a child. And once again, brings up the idea that it is necessary to reprove a child and to reprove them with a rod. Proper discipline. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Can I get a witness? We know that children who are not properly disciplined grow up to be brats. And we've all had to deal with other people's brats. And it's always other people's brats. It's never our own brats. But we all know what it's like to have to deal with a spoiled child. We've seen them throwing fits out in public when they don't get their own way. And whenever I see that kind of behavior, I think, well, you know, parent, since you are the parent, what you're going through right now is your fault. Because this is the kind of child that you've raised. You haven't disciplined them properly to know how to behave in public. 
Now, yes, I understand that there are exceptions to every rule and that maybe there are mitigating circumstances. I get all that. But for the most part, across the board, parents who do not properly discipline their children wind up with spoiled brats. That was true now. It was true in Solomon's day. A child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Then look down at verse 17. Correct your son, which means discipline your son, and he will give you comfort. So how do you bring wisdom to your son so that he's a joy to you, so that he's a comfort to you? Well, you have to do that through proper training, proper discipline. Correct your son, and he will give you comfort, and he will also delight your soul. Do you want to raise up a child who is ultimately a joy to you? who you can look at proudly and say, yes, that's my child, well, then it is necessary to discipline them while they're young. I used to say to my kids with fair frequency, I am going to risk being your enemy to show you that I'm your friend. And I would discipline them or take away things from them or prohibit them from doing the things they wanted to do. And it didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair to them at the time. And now that they are adults, they have come back to me many times and said, I get that now. I get that saying. I understand it now. And thank you for teaching me how to behave. So proper discipline ultimately pays not just in a child that is a good, functioning, righteous person within the society, but it is also beneficial to you if you just think, that being your friend's buddy and his playmate and his friend and his pal and just hanging with your child all the time and I'm cool and I'm groovy, huh? If you're working so hard to be your child's friend instead of being his parent and his disciplinarian, you're going to raise a child who's going to bring you no end of heartache. Now, can I get a witness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so that takes us back to verse 4. Again, Solomon speaking from the standpoint of being a king is speaking of a good king who brings stability to the land by justice. So Solomon has over and over again told us about what it is to have proper justice in court, why it's so important to be fair, not to show partiality. And he's saying that a king who is a judge who judges righteously, who brings about proper justice into a land, gives that land stability because the residents of that land can count on justice being handed out properly. They know that the rules apply equally to everybody, and they know that the rules are ultimately for their own good and for the good of the larger society, and so it's necessary for a king to have a not only correct set of rules, but a consistent set of rules, because I think we all know, especially given what we've all seen the last few weeks, that when you hear one thing and the officials tell you, this is the official thing, and then a few days later you hear, no, not so much. Now we've changed it. It's this. And then a few weeks later it's, well, okay, here's what's really going on. That does not bring stability. Instead, what that brings is what you find on social media, people who are running the gamut of 
agreeing and disagreeing and arguing against each other depending on which of the many rules they're adhering to. It does not bring stability. So Solomon said that a consistent king, a king gives stability to a land by the way he meets out proper, fair justice. But by contrast, a man who takes bribes overthrows the land. This is something we've seen over and over again. Solomon has said that bribery is completely unjust and improper. If you're making your judgments, if you're making your decisions based on how it enriches you, then that is not going to result in proper justice being meted out. And then the people are not going to feel secure, especially the poor, who are going to realize that they don't have the money, the wealth, the ability to properly bribe the judge. And therefore, they know they're not going to get proper justice. Look at verse 7 for a minute. It says, the righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. Okay, so a proper king who is a proper judge who brings proper justice gives stability to the land and part of that proper justice is being concerned for the rights of the poor even if they can't give you a bribe you still treat them justly simply by virtue of the fact that justice must prevail the second half of verse 7 says the wicked does not understand such concern. The wicked, the bribing, the ones who always want their own way, the ones who are always in rebellion, the ones who are stiffening their neck against reproof or teaching, those people are not going to understand it when righteous people care about the poor because they know there can't be any benefit derived from the poor. So then why are you so concerned with justice for the poor? They can't benefit you. By the way, verse 7 also kind of gives you a standard that you can judge yourself by. How do you feel about the poor, the underprivileged? Is it your tendency to want to help them? Is it your tendency to do what you can for them and make sure that Justice is being meted out to them. Well, if you're doing that, it is a good indication, according to Solomon, that you are indeed a person who is righteous, somebody who understands the things of God and who realizes that these people are made in the image of God and that justice, judgment, ultimate judgment is up to God. It's not up to you. So therefore, you treat everybody with proper justice. That's what righteousness is. But if you find yourself thinking, I don't understand what's the big deal with the poor and why are those Christian people always worried about the poor and why do people care about the poor? You can't get a benefit from the poor. Well, guess what Solomon tells you? He tells you that's because you're wicked. So you can kind of gauge your relative righteousness or wickedness by gauging your reaction to justice for the poor. Verse 5 then. A man who flatters his neighbor. We have talked a lot about flattery, especially the last few weeks. That idea of flattery has come up repeatedly. It is the opposite of reproving somebody. Instead of telling somebody the truth and correcting them, 
correcting them in patience and in love, but still correcting them for their own good. Instead, you just tell them, you're great, you're fine. God thinks you're a handful of aces. What you're doing is no problem. No, don't worry about it. You're good. That's flattery. Up, up, up with people. That's flattery. Telling somebody, oh, it doesn't matter how you behave. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, it's, it's all good. Everybody likes you. Everybody loves you. You're cool. Nobody's against it. You're great. That's flattery because you're not really telling them the truth. You're actually using positive phraseology as a lie to them in order to make them like you better, in order to make them react positively to you. That's what flattery is. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. In other words, you're actually laying a trap for that person if you're not properly correcting and only telling them what they want to hear. Everybody just naturally wants to hear good things and nothing but good things about themselves. I use that joke all the time where I say, me, me, it's all about me, but enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? That joke is because we all want to hear positive things about ourselves. And if you're simply flattering people, which people love, our natural egocentric instinct is to want to hear good things about ourselves. But if nobody is correcting us, if nobody is bringing us along in the ways of God and in the wisdom of God and his word, then we're ultimately going to fall into a trap. What did we read earlier? A man who hardens his neck is suddenly going to be broken and there's going to be no remedy. Same idea. If you're doing nothing but flattering somebody, you're laying a trap for them because they're going to walk away thinking that everything's fine with them and not realizing their own rebellion, their transgression against God. Verse 6, by transgression, an evil man is ensnared. There's that word transgression again. By rebellion against either the law of a society or the law of God, rebelling against that, refusing to bow the, the knee to that law is transgression. The evil man, by his transgression, is ultimately trapped. He's ultimately ensnared. But the righteous don't have any such fear. We don't go through our life expecting a trap. We don't go through our life expecting to be ensnared and so Solomon says that the righteous sing and rejoice because we are happy that we know the truth of God. We are happy to know that we are accepted by God. We are happy to know that the laws of God especially are given for the good of people, for the proper behavior of people and to draw people closer to the wisdom of God. God is not putting rules in place for the for the purpose of hurting people or ensnaring and trapping people. He's doing these things for our benefit, all things working together for the good of those who are called by God. That, that idea permeates the Bible. God is working for our ultimate good, not for our ultimate harm. And therefore, we can walk through our life singing and rejoicing, whereas a person who is evil, who is constantly transgressing the law of God, has nothing to look forward to but a trap, but a snare, but his neck being broken. Verse 7, then, we've already looked at. The righteous is concerned 
for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. Verse 8 then, another of these words that Solomon uses to describe foolish, rebellious, transgressing people. Now he calls them scorners. Scorners are people who hate, who dislike the things of God, who dislike righteousness, people who make fun of, cynical people who act against and think against everything that is righteous. Those kind of scorners, if they come to power, if they grow in number within your society, within your city, Solomon says they're going to destroy a city. They're going to destroy a society. Scorners set a city aflame. Some of the great events of history start with a fire, and then the city is on fire, whether we're talking about the great Chicago fire or whether we're talking about Nero burning Rome. Cities aflame is a terrible thing because people are losing everything they own, everything they have, And so Solomon takes that horrific event and says that's what it's like when scorners get a hearing within a city because they start stirring up trouble. They start telling you to be unhappy with the laws, with the standards, with the rules that you're living by, and ultimately they encourage your rebellion against God, and so they're really just setting the city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. Well, I think he's talking there about the anger of God or the anger of judges, the anger of the king, any of those people who are in authority whose rules they are expecting to have followed by the populace when the scorners grow in number, when they increase, when they rebel against the leadership of the city and ultimately against God's leadership, They are like a burning city. And the contrast is wise men, people who are paying attention to the things of God and living wise lives within a society, they turn away wrath and anger. So they live at peace. It's one of the many reasons, I think, that previously we were told that they can sing and rejoice. Verse 9 is, again, one of those thematic elements that we've seen all the way through the book of Proverbs. When a wise man has a controversy, a dispute, a debate with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages, gets really angry at you, or laughs, which means he just kind of holds you in derision, and there is no rest. There is no point at which both sides kind of go, well, okay, never mind. Once you enter into a contention with a fool, we've already been told not to answer a fool after his folly. If you're willing to enter into a debate with a fool, you're not going to change his mind because, after all, uh, he's a fool. And all he's going to do is either laugh you to scorn and make fun of you and your arguments Or he's going to rage at you. He's going to get angry at you. Again, this is one of those moments when I want to say, can I get a witness? Because we've all had that experience of trying to argue with somebody who just doesn't get it. I see this 
all the time, every day, and so can you by simply firing up Facebook any time of any day. And you'll see people arguing back and forth in little calm boxes, not convincing each other, and the conversation ultimately devolves into people threatening each other that they are heretics and that they're hellbound and then you're a demon and you're a... Or it's, well, you're such an idiot. What a fool. Your argument makes no sense. I mean, this... This particular thing that Solomon wrote, that when you argue with a fool, when you get into a controversy with a foolish man, he's going to do one of two things. He's going to rage against you or he's going to laugh at you. Still holds true to this very moment and is being demonstrated minute by minute on social media because it's still how people act. So I think the better part of wisdom is just don't engage it. Just don't get into it. Don't answer a fool after his folly. But, oh, people love to debate. Look at verse 11. Skip over verse 12 for a minute. Look at verse 11. A fool always loses his temper. Always. If you're a person that flies off the handle all the time, guess what Solomon said about you? You're a fool. Because you don't have control over your emotions. The second half of that verse says, but a wise man holds his temper back. A wise man has control of himself. He doesn't fly off the handle. So again, this is one of those moments where Solomon gives you the opportunity to discover whether you're a wise man or a fool. Not only can you gauge it by your reaction to the poor, But you can also gauge it by how do you deal with your temper? Most men that I have ever met, and the women are all going to agree with me here, and I'm doing that on purpose because I want the women on my side. But (laughs) men, because we are raised with testosterone, we are just fueled by testosterone, which is why in our teenage years, once testosterone gets a hold of us, We immediately go do sports with other men, especially the kind of sports where we can run into other guys and knock people over or beat them up or whack something with a stick or, you know, anything we can do to let the aggression out. And those of us who are not sports-minded join rock and roll bands so that we can be loud and abrasive because we've just got to find a way to let that out. And all, I'm going to... State this, and I doubt if anybody's going to argue with me. All teenage boys have to learn to deal with their temper because we're all just naturally self-centered and angry. That's all part of our sin nature, our self-centeredness and our desire to tell everybody else how wrong they are. So wisdom, then, is as we grow, as we're corrected, especially by our parents, then we learn as we grow how to control our temper, how to control our anger. And a man who grows and doesn't know that has been improperly raised and, according to Solomon, is demonstrably a fool because he hasn't ever learned one of the essential elements of what it is to be a grown-up, mature, intelligent man. Men marry women, ideally. (laughs) 
And if a man doesn't know how to control his temper before he marries her, there's going to be nothing but strife in that marriage. There's going to be nothing but trouble in that marriage. So in order to be a real man, a real husband, a real father, one of the most harmful things that I have seen men do in my life is that they discipline their children in anger. They're angry when they do it. And so they're harsh when they do it. And they're not trying to correct their child. They're exuding their own anger onto the child. And the child doesn't grow up to be a loving, wise, mature person. The child grows up to be an angry, resentful person. And they run away from their parents as quickly as they can because they want to get out from under the abuse. You have to learn if you're going to be a grown-up, intelligent, wise person. You have to learn, men especially, to control your anger. Now, that doesn't let you women off the hook. But I only know the male experience. And I know what it is to live with testosterone. And I used to be a very difficult and angry person. So I know what that battle is like to learn how to control yourself. Look at verse 22. If a man is constantly angry, I just said, he's not going to have a good marriage and he's not going to raise good children because verse 22 says, an angry man stirs up strife. The end result of an angry man is that he is stirring up arguing. Difficulty, pain, trouble everywhere he goes. He's not bringing peace and comfort to people. A hot-tempered man abounds, and there's that word again, in transgression. Oh, he's not just rebelling against the rules of society and the rules of God. He's rebelling constantly. He's rebelling continually. He is abounding in his transgression against God, against his wife, against his children, against his boss. He's just bringing nothing but argumentation and strife because he's a man who never learned to control his temper. Look at verse 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? How often have we seen this? Repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, we've been told, don't reply instantly. I remember saying a few months ago, step back, count to ten. When you're really heated, when you're really upset, the next words that come out of your mouth are going to be nothing but hurtful. So don't do it. Give yourself an opportunity to kind of cool down, think about it. Are the next words I'm going to say, are they going to engender peace? Are they going to bring comfort? Are they going to make everything okay again? Or are they going to make my wife never trust me ever again? Both of those are options when you're angry and hasty with your words. Do you see a man who is hasty with his words? Well, there's more hope for a fool than for him. It's Solomon's way of saying, even a fool is better off than a person who doesn't know how to control his tongue. And that has come up so many times in the book of Proverbs. I don't know how many times we have to hear it before we really ingest it and really say, okay, the word of God says to us repeatedly, 
in our study of the book of Proverbs. We've even gone and read what James says about the tongue being a fire. It sets everything aflame. We've seen repeatedly in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, be careful with your words, be careful how you speak. You can do a tremendous amount of damage with your words. You have to be careful with what you say. And a few times Solomon has told us that the better approach is to just shut up because you're going to do damage if you're hasty, if you're angry, if you're not thinking, if you're not wise, if you're in a hurry. So just back up, count to 10, think about what you're saying demonstrate that you're actually wise in the things of God. And the chief way that you can demonstrate that wisdom is by how you talk. And too much talk always. I'm not even going to qualify this one. I'm going to put it out there. And if anybody wants to object to it, we can meet in the parking lot. <laughs> always too much talk does damage. Always. I've never seen it when it doesn't. It may not initially, but long term, too much talk always does damage. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Then we skipped over verse 10, which says, men of bloodshed. This is another term that Solomon uses for evil men, men who are constantly scorners, men who are constantly in rebellion, men who are constantly transgressing, men of bloodshed, hate the blameless, but the upright are concerned for the life of the blameless. So really, this verse is the very same as where we started. We started at verse 27, and I said this is really the whole book of Proverbs in a single verse. It says, an unjust man is abominable to the righteous, and he who is upright in his way is abominable to the wicked. Well, verse 10 is saying the same thing. Wicked men, men of bloodshed, hate blameless people. But the upright are concerned for the life of the blameless. Upright people care about the well-being of other blameless people because we're all, to repeat a phrase that has been used all too often lately, we're kind of all in this together. We who are Christians, we who care about the Bible, we who care about the things of God, we are walking this journey together. That's why we get together. That's why we assemble together. That's why we worship and sing and pray together is to encourage each other to keep going on this walk. And sometimes this walk is not easy. And therefore, as upright people, we are also concerned for the life and the well-being of other people who are on this same journey with us. But men of bloodshed, evil men, hate us. But then again, you get to Jesus, and Jesus says, Remember, the world's going to hate you, but remember, they hated me first. So Jesus said the same thing Solomon said, because it is just an observable fact of life that the evil people of this world hate the righteous, because the righteous are like a great big neon sign flashing all the time saying, God exists and judgment is coming. And since that scares them, they just want us to shut up and go away. Well, that's been true in Solomon's day. It's true in our day. 
Men of bloodshed hate the blameless, but the upright are concerned for his life. Okay, we just read verse 11 just a moment ago. A fool always loses his temper. So verse 12 says, again, Solomon speaking from the standpoint of the king, who is a ruler, who is a judge. If a ruler pays attention to a falsehood, to a lie, to a false witness, then the result of that is going to be that those who minister to that ruler, to that king, are going to recognize that that king listens to lies. He listens to falsehoods. He can be persuaded by those lies. And the end result is not going to be that those ministers of the king become more righteous and more honest and more truthful. Instead, what's going to happen is all his ministers then become wicked. So the necessity that Solomon is putting out there is you have to be just You have to be righteous to be a king, to be a leader, to be a ruler, and you have to be consistent. And that kind of consistency in justice, we've already been told, that brings peace, that brings stability to a society because they know that their leaders are trustworthy. But if a ruler pays attention to falsehoods, all his ministers become wicked. And that can't be good for anybody. That's not good for the ruler because his ministers, who he's trusting, are going to lie to him and his reputation is going to be destroyed in their eyes and the people ultimately are not going to get justice. If a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. Verse 13, the poor man and the one who oppresses the poor man have this one thing in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Light in the eyes of a person is used euphemistically throughout the Bible to say that they're alive. Their eyes haven't gone dark. The poor person who is alive is alive because God made him alive. The oppressor who is alive is alive because God made him alive. And it is God who is sustaining the life of the poor person. It is God who is sustaining the life of the oppressor. And he can shut your lights off anytime he wants to. So Solomon is saying, because he is always defending the poor, and because he is always defending them against oppressors, people who treat them badly because they can't benefit from them in any way, Solomon says, actually, the truth is, you're both under the hands of the same sovereign God. You both have that in common. Your lives are in the hands of the sovereign Lord. Therefore, this kind of oppression of the poor should not be occurring because you are both creatures of God. You are both made in God's image, and you are both going to stand before God. You get to, again, Jesus in the New Testament told stories like Lazarus and the rich man. And the way he told the story Lazarus ends up in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man ends up in flames of torment. Why? Because the sovereign God who decides those things decided it that way. Well, that's the same thing that Solomon is getting at here. A poor man and the oppressor are both in the hands of God. They have this thing in common. They are both alive because God has made them alive. And that ought to be a really fearful thing. 
That ought to be something that once we recognize, it affects our thinking, our behavior, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we deal with other people, and the way that we treat people justly and fairly because we know that we're not the end of the story. The end of the story is God who made us both is going to judge between us. Verse 14, if a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. So just like Solomon said, the way that a society is going to feel at ease, the way that a society is going to feel secure is if they have consistent kings, consistent judges. But a king who judges the poor with truth, with righteousness, with appropriate justice, well, then his throne is going to be established forever. Here, we'll try this. Somebody quick, name the sixth evil king of the northern tribes of Israel. No? Yeah, no one knows. No one remembers. No, I, I don't know. I can't yank it out. But do we remember the first really just king of Judah? Yeah, it's King David. We know King David. We talk about King David. His throne is established. Ultimately, Messiah is going to sit on David's throne. That throne is going to be established forever. Why? Because it's established in righteousness and in justice. Solomon, being the son of David, knows those promises. And so he would say that righteousness and justice is the way that a throne is, in fact, established forever. But a throne that is evil, that is rebellious, that is not following after the justice of God, well, then you've got the sixth king of Israel, who none of us can think of offhand. And I know when you get home, you're all going to go back to First Kings and you're going to look it up and you're going to say, there it is, it's that guy whose name I can't pronounce. It's that guy right there. But, but the reason we don't remember him is because his throne was not established. So Solomon is saying something very, very true here. If a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. The rod of reproof gives wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. We've already read that. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. We've already looked at that. Correct your son, and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. We've already looked at that. Verse 18 we probably all know this by heart, at least the King James version of it, because it is used and misused in many, many sermons. Where there is no vision, the King James says, the people perish. The NASB says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. That word vision there can also be translated revelation. What it means is, where there is no understanding of God, of his righteousness, of his justice, of his rules, of his law, where there is no understanding of that, the result is the people are unrestrained. They're going to walk any way they want. They're going to walk according to their own decisions, their own emotions, their own willfulness. And Solomon has already told us there is a way that seems right to a man. But God judges the heart. 
And so if people are not trained, if people are not instructed in the things of God, and if that instruction is not coming from the top, from the king all the way down, all the way to the poor of the society, if you're not getting that kind of justice and righteousness taught across the board because there is no understanding, there is no revelation, there is no wisdom, the end result of it is everybody's going to do what they want to do. They're going to be unrestrained. And I think the King James rendering, they perish, is a good rendering of that word. Yes, the end result of being unrestrained is you're going to go your own way and you're going to perish for lack of understanding the things of God, for lack of understanding the wisdom of God. The second half of the verse makes that more obvious. But happy, content, blessed is he who keeps the law. That can be the law of the land. That can be the law of God. It is the exact opposite of the scorners who throw off by transgression all the rules, all the laws. But a man who keeps the law because he does have vision, he does have the revelation of the word of God and the wisdom of God, that man is happy. That man is blessed. That man is content in his life. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. And I'll tell you what, we're going to stop right there because I know it's getting late. It is 10 after 8, and I need to let you go. I thought we might get through this chapter today, but verse 19 and verse 21 are going to take a little bit of time to do some word etymology and to compare some translations, and that alone is probably going to take about 15 minutes. And so we will start with that next week, and, uh, and then we will perhaps even introduce uh, chapter 30, the words of Agur, and that's just a name that I am happy has fallen out of common use, along with Ithiel and Eucal. I'm glad those names are gone. Any questions about what you heard tonight? I know there was really nothing new tonight. It was just extra emphasis on all the things that we have heard already in the book of Proverbs. And I think you see how it's all coming together. It's all kind of coalescing now. And the men of Hezekiah, I think, kind of saw it that way. Like, okay, these are the, the important Proverbs. These are the things that need emphasis. These are the big thematic elements that we want to emphasize. So in a few weeks, we'll be done with Proverbs. Questions? Anything? Well, then say good night to the internet congregation. Good night. good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.